it's tragic to think that there are people who are being let down because their eating disorder is putting up this front and they really are rooting for the other people to help them not give in to that, but they can't say it. I don't think we can expect patients to be able to say, look, don't let me restrict. Don't leave the room and let the dog eat my dinner. <laughs> don't do that for me. Be yeah. strong for me. Yeah. Don't let don't let my tears or my anger bully you. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I get to do the fangirl thing again. In that, I mean, I get to interview or talk to or have a conversation with somebody that I am a big fan of. And this week, it's Laura Collins Lister Mensch. And Laura was um, a big influence um, in my recovery, and she didn't even know about it for a really long time um, until just recently, probably the last couple of years. But Laura founded Feast, and Feast is the organization that was designed for parents, information for parents of sufferers of eating disorders. But I stumbled across it as a sufferer myself, and I was able to use the advice there because it resonated with me, and I knew deep down that it was what I needed to hear, despite it being very difficult to hear, I'll tell you. I knew that it was what I needed to hear, what I needed to do. I was able to use the information on that website and gear it towards my own recovery. And as an adult with an eating disorder, I was taking the advice that Feast was giving parents of children with eating disorders and using that to help me um, navigate my own recovery. So um, Laura has, that organization that she founded really means a lot to me. I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast. We talk about um, her experience as a parent of a child with an eating disorder and how she became a parent advocate and how that led to Feast. And then we end up talking about the exciting things that she's doing now and how she is continuing to contribute to helping parents navigate their way through the world of eating disorder recovery with a child, but also helping treatment providers provide the experience for parents that's going to help them. The first thing I asked Laura, as I ask all my guests, is to tell us a little bit about themselves. So here's Laura. Okay. Um, I am a mom, primarily, and that's how I got into the eating disorder world. Uh, our daughter got ill at 14, and I found that I knew nothing about eating disorders. And so I tried to educate myself and our family did our very best to help support her toward recovery. And that was what happened. And then after she got better, we were pretty frustrated uh, that there was so little knowledge out there and that there was so little good science knowledge. And so I wrote a book about it because I'm a writer and writers write. I thought that would be the end of it. But uh, as soon as the book came out, I was surrounded by families saying the same thing, that they hadn't gotten the information they needed, they didn't feel supported, and there was very little action on the part of parents to share that information and also to share evidence-based information. Most of what I saw coming out of parents was guilt, was um, sort of anger, guilt, blame, and I didn't think that was a great stance for parents. It didn't work for me. So we started building a collaboration of lots of parents all around the world. And that's what I've been doing for almost 10 years now, is trying to help parents feel empowered as activists and as parents. And it's been really exciting. It's been lovely. Yeah. And so when you say that, that you felt frustrated, the information was not there and available to you. Um, can you put your can you put your finger on exactly what sort of information you thought that was? And this is yeah, this is really the point. Is it's not just that there isn't much information out there. It's that a lot of the information that was out there and still is out there is incorrect and unhelpful. And that shocked me because I felt like well if if good information was out there that parents would make good choices, but I still find 
that most of the information about eating disorders that's out there is not accurate. It's not together with the science. It's not based on evidence. And I felt like parents needed that information, but we also needed to make sure to be part of bringing that to the public in general. I think we play a special role in advocacy, just like we play a special role with recovery. I feel like the hardest part must be for any parent. I'm not a parent, so I don't really know what it's like to have a child and especially don't know what it's like to have a child that has some sort of illness. But it must feel like a minefield when you are trying to find information about this illness and what you should do and you're finding conflicting information. Um, it must be incredibly difficult to put those pieces together. I'm interested in how you did that initially. Well, let me first say that the first motivation of any parent is to do the right thing. And when we fall down this rabbit hole and discover what's going on with an eating disorder, our first and our most foremost feeling is fear. We are terrified. We are terrified of the illness. We are terrified of not doing the right thing. And then there's this other terror that really seizes us, which is a terror that we've done something wrong. That's why I emphasize in everything I do that parents need to understand that they did not cause this. It's a, still a message that we hear out there. And secondly, that there's not much we can do because the science is really strong on the point that there is a great deal we can do if we're well-informed and if we get out there and find clinical support that will help us do our job as parents, we are really powerful in helping get people well, just as we would if it was a burn injury or a diabetes or cancer or a car accident. No one questions in those situations where family's role is. But in this one, parents have been especially set outside the room, literally. And we were. We were given a lot of information that sent us the message that the more involved we were, the more pathological we were. When the science actually says the opposite, that we really do need to be involved and informed and empowered. So tell me, please, about FEAST, because you know <laughs> FEAST is very important to me personally. This is something I'm terribly humbled and proud about, which is that when the parent community that I was surrounded by, which was kind of an empowered, educated, engaged group of families, we really met around the dinner table, literally and figuratively, online. There was a message board that I had created after my book came out, and that community was vibrant and just so energized. And that group ended up being the genesis of three organizations that I can think of, and I've been involved with all three. Uh, the first was Mosley Parents, the second was Feast, and the third was Charlotte's Helix. Feast is, of course, the really big one. It's a group, it's an international group of parents and people who are interested in parent empowerment and information from all over the world. They're brought together through, uh, we, there's a board of directors, there are volunteers, there is the forum, there's a website, there are events, and a lot of printed materials and online materials that help parents get the information they need to make good choices to support patients, because that's the point, is the patients. Also, could you tell us a little bit about um, Charlotte's Helix, because um, that's a great initiative too. It's a really, again, been a huge honor to be involved. One of the parents that was involved with FEAST, Charlotte Bevan, was a very active advocate in her country, in the UK. And she really wanted the UK to be included in an international initiative called AN25K, which is an effort to get enough samples around the world so that we can crack the code on what makes certain people vulnerable to an eating disorder and others not. Charlotte thought that it was a great project, but the UK wasn't included in the original uh, funding. So we all 
uh, thought that would be a really great idea. Around that time, Charlotte learned that she was dying of breast cancer. And she put her name and her legacy behind getting the UK included in that study. So we basically held a bake sale. (laughs) We We did fundraising on a very personal level. Amounts came in in very small amounts and then some larger amounts from around the world to get funding to add the UK. And we did it. And we've had over 2,000 volunteers, brave, wonderful volunteers who have had a history of an eating disorder who have come forward to be part of that study. I cannot tell you how happy it made Charlotte that this happened. And towards the end of her life, she was able to see that some that we actually had samples taken and that we were on our way. And that was some of the last work that she did. It's It was a total honor to be involved in that. I've um, actually been involved in as much as I've, I've given a sample. <laughs> but yeah. it's, um, it's, even on that level, though, it does feel wonderful to be able to be involved in, in that way. To I contributed. I, I gave something to... So I imagine that, like you said, it's wonderful to have been involved in such a um, deeper organizational level. Um, And you must be incredibly proud of what FEAST has achieved as well. I really am. And I I feel it says something about also the empowerment that we're trying to help families have in their own lives, in their care of their loved ones, to educate themselves and to get involved. It's also part of what FEAST is. And being an activist heals me. It makes me feel better after the experience, uh, the stressful experience of facing an eating disorder. I find it healing. And I sometimes think of it as the last, the, the last part of getting over an eating disorder for a whole family is contributing, is paying it forward. And I see this. I see families do a little bit to help. Like you like you said, you got involved with, uh, you know, contributing to the to the Helix to AN twenty five K, and then when the results come out, then you're you become part of it, and we all can be proud together. And this eating disorder, it tries very hard to disempower us and make us feel as if we can't do anything and we're helpless. So <laughs> when we do this activism thing, I think we're thumbing our nose at at the eating disorder in a really positive, helpful way. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, that's that's a lot of how it feels as well, um, and especially empowering other people. And we learn from each other as well. Those, mm-hmm. those of us that went through recovery the hard way learn a lot about that and then can pass on to other people sort of ways not to necessarily make the same mistakes and what we've learned and, and what can help um, get them through recovery faster and easier, or at least that's the plan, I think. Yeah, I feel like, you know, crisis can make you bitter and go inward and resent. And and I do see that, you know, some people respond to this by, you know, moving on afterwards, they just can't that the topic is painful. And then it can also transform you. So while I'll never feel positively about eating disorders, I do feel very positively about the many, many, many families and recovered people that I know who have faced this down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am, I'm filled with gratitude and empathy and admiration for people in a way that I didn't before. I didn't have access to this heroic little subculture of people who have faced this and move forward. I find personally that it's also very incredibly rewarding to me in a way that I can't even put into words. Mm-hmm. Um, me too. It's not rewarding in the same way, you know, I used to recently quit my job, but re- used to work in marketing. And I would find aspects of my job there rewarding if the product did well or I'd feel good about that. But it's not, there's nothing on the level of that feeling when someone else, something clicks for them and they can see their path to recovery a little bit clearer as a result of some information that's been shared or something. I I can't put into words how good that feels. Exactly. And if we can, if we can get access to that, that feeling of optimism and engagement and joy 
in moving forward, then we're helping in other ways besides eating disorders, right? I mean, I, I feel like we're all contributing to the world or taking from the world in a certain way by engaging in this and helping each other through this. We're really contributing positively in the world at a time when I think a lot of us are looking for ways to do that. So I'd love to go back to the feast um, and especially the feast forum, um, because I do attribute my ability to recover from my eating disorder to the feast forum because I didn't have any help. I still never, you know, I never went to any eating disorder specialist. I didn't even know that they were available for me in my area. My GP didn't have a clue. Um, <laughs> kept on trying to psychoanalyze me and that really wasn't going to go down very well. But I was able to go on as an adult sufferer to the feast forum and read the advice that was being given to other parents and what those parents should say to their child at meal times and how those parents should ensure that that child eats their way into recovery. And I was able to take those words and apply them to myself. And that wasn't easy, but it made it possible for me. And so the forum there and the advice on that forum was invaluable. Um, I'd love to know what um, going into the forum, how you thought it would turn out, what it turned <laughs> out to be, and, and really sort of looking back, what you think were the biggest learning points in that, not just for you, but for also other people. That forum is is a is a point of great community, but also it models an attitude that I think isn't, we don't see everywhere. So I think people would have to go there and, and participate in the community and look at the decade of, of messages there to, to get a feel for this. But we're not just talking about a bunch of people complaining. We're not just talking about people saying the same thing that you would hear or read anywhere else. It's really a unique place. It is a place where, as you mentioned, people talked about what you can do. It's active. It was filled with information. It wasn't just affirmations. And there is an accountability, believe it or not, on an online forum that isn't elsewhere. Because in our society, we don't talk about eating disorders. We don't really talk about food where even in eating disorder spaces, people are afraid to talk about uh, actually what you do. We kind of leave that for the treatment room. But on the forum, people are sharing practical information and science-based information in a way that I don't see everywhere. It is more common now to see, but back in back five years ago, 10 years ago, there was very little talk of food, for one thing. That was considered a little radical. There was very little talk of parents actively getting involved with food. There was a attitude about patients that they, that their thoughts and their feelings were irrational and they were based on trauma and that they had these symptoms because of bad things that had happened to them. The forum has a different attitude and I think it's one that resonates, believe it or not, with a lot of patience. And it moves me so much that it had that for you. But I will say, when we started, the forum did have both patients and parents. And at some point, we made the move to make it exclusively parents because there was there were some influences that were making it difficult to have the conversation. But I heard constantly from patients who said, I need this kind of talk in my life. I need to talk about food. I need to talk about weight restoration. I need to not shy away from these topics. I need practical information on how to get well. And they, there wasn't that forum out there for patients, something I've always regretted. But I didn't feel that I could host because I was a parent. And I didn't feel that Feast was the right place to host. But now... I'm seeing this happen. I know you do it. And I'm seeing a far more openness to not just supportive stuff, but practical stuff. Is that what is that for you what the difference was that it was practical? 
it was definitely the difference is practical. And I must have, I think I was in early enough in that, that, you know, you said initially you had it open for um, sufferers and, and also parents. I think, I, I think that was the time I was looking at it. Um, but I can, I, I can remember the first thread that I read and it was um, about a parent asking about a mealtime when the child didn't want to eat and then other parents were coming in and saying, telling that parent that they had to sit there and they had to, no matter what the tantrum was, they had to just compassionately just keep on, you know, reinforcing that the child had to eat. And I remember I closed the um, sort of in in almost panic, but also eating disorder, you know, eating disorder fear. I closed the browser. I just couldn't read it anymore because it was that close to me. I knew that this was it. This was what the answer was. <laughs> and it scared me. It's where it scared my eating disorder. I closed it and I didn't come back to the forum for another two days. But then in that time, in that two day period, I had been able to sort of work myself up to this is the kind of things that you need to be reading and this is what you are going to need to do. And that next time I went back to the forum, I was then ready to start taking on board that information. Um, That's so. beautiful. And, and I, I, I have heard it from more and more people. I, I think that, I think that the idea that patients don't want to hear this kind of information or that it's triggering or we can't talk about food, for example, we can't talk about the mechanics of these things is probably based on some older ideas about eating disorders. I'm still, I still struggle with how to make that happen for patients in a, in a, in a good way. It's hard to do in a mixed group. It is. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. It would be great if we could do that in groups that, that included patients, families, and clinicians. That would be wonderful. But I find that the three different constituencies there need their own spaces in order to have a conversation that isn't just a, a push-me-pull-you. But we need them. We need all three. Like you said, I have set one up for adults, in, and I'm very... Um, specific when I say active eating disorder recovery the mm -hmm. people that are like I was in that stage when I went back to feast and knew I have to read this stuff and I'm not going to like it or my eating disorder is not going to like it but this I know this is what I have to do so mm -hmm. th th I think there's a, also a split that needs to happen in sufferers or patients between those who are ready to be active in their own recovery and listen to the things that they don't really want to hear and try their best to do them anyway and resistant and you know we all get to that finally I think but then there is also a split between that and people who are still in extremely resistant and and therefore would not be um, able to contribute to that conversation in a way that was supportive to the people who are in active recovery um, and so I, I do think that definition, even within the category of sufferers or patients, is important. And once that has been sort of defined, that has been, as I've seen in the Slack group or the forum that I have, incredibly supportive for um, sufferers. Because we talk about food. I mean, pretty much all we talk about is food and how to eat more and how to get around the eating disorder negotiations that will try and stop that person from eating more and we support each other in eating more. It is very food first specific discussions. And we talk about other things such as how to find the right therapist that's actually going to support you in eating more, how to find the right dietitian that's going to support you in not restricting. And those things that we know as a category or a set of people with a pretty specific mental illness we know that we're different from the normal population and so we need those therapists and um, dietitians that understand the illness and how to find them. So there's a lot of that discussion as well. But really, you know, we, we are in the same way that feast and around the dinner table and the, the things and forums and resources on there talking about how to help a child eat as a parent and how to support them in that. We really do talk about the logistics of eating food a lot. 
Yeah. And, and uh, that other piece that you just mentioned too, the finding clinical support that is going to work for you. Yeah. And I think the challenge for patients looking for, for treatment uh, is, you know, it's like this, the challenge for families looking for treatment for a loved one, but part, not all of what we're talking about is a kind of a paradigm shift on how we look at the eating disorder, right? And, and part of that has come from FBT, not all. Um, so I'm seeing, I've seen a revolution in how parents approach this and how we look for treatment and what kind of clinicians p- families are looking for. Do you see that happening in a parallel with the sufferer population? Oh, for sure. And again, it's that, it's that split though between people that are actively saying like know that they have to be very they have to be advocates for their own recovery and they're actively doing everything that they can to put themselves in the right place for recovery those those are the people that are coming forward saying so i just you know this is like so a conversation that came up yesterday actually i tried a new dietitian um and she told me that i should be eating low-fat cottage cheese as opposed to regular cottage cheese Ew. Guys, I don't feel like this dietitian is the right person for me. <laughs> I don't think this, the, although I, she might be, you know, like her advice might be based on, we're not judging the advice of the dietitian. It might be based on, I don't know what else, but it's not right for somebody who is struggling with a restrictive eating disorder. So we have those, you know, and it's people coming forward. This is sufferers coming forward, patients coming forward saying, I don't feel that this is the right dietitian for me my eating disorder loves her and my eating disorder is telling me that this person's great and I should go with them but the real healthy brain me is saying that this isn't probably not a good idea and I'm having this dilemma help me make this decision it's it's that sort of thing really Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and that comes that comes up a lot and I do think it's another one of those light bulb moments for people when they really realize that they're not the general population they have this mental illness that makes diet and exercise rules very different for them than they might be for anybody else. And that realization enables them to then start to discard the inverted commas, healthy eating and healthy lifestyle recommendations Mm -hmm. that um, are provided for the general population, which is incredibly empowering for recovery. Absolutely. And I, I'm seeing more and more of this conversation. I'm really heartened by the changes that are coming up in that way. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, we, we talk about the logistics of eating food a lot. We don't actually talk about, um, things like people's specific meal plans or types of food necessarily, or things like that. But it's more about people coming on and saying, so I'm struggling with the anxiety that's coming up. I'm going to challenge a fear food at lunchtime. I'm really struggling right now. My eating disorder is telling me this. Guys, give me some support. Give me some help so that I you know, feel empowered and I feel confident that I can do this. It's that kind of talk rather than mm-hmm. we're you know, saying we, we don't talk about specific foods because people are working with different dietitians and different things that wouldn't be relevant for us to comment or judge on what another person is eating, but it's more conversation around just how to help that person cope with the anxiety that comes up before, during, after, and um, healthy brain arguments that oppose the eating disorder arguments. And because we all have those eating disorder arguments in our head, we know them. Mm -hmm. And so we can also help each other, or I see support, you know, I get told a lot that when people support each other and they tell each other what the healthy brain argument is, that reinforces that in their own brain and helps them the next time they have to use that argument themselves at a meal time. Exactly. So it's really fascinating. It's it's it is fascinating. Um, and I, as as I said, that's that a lot of that has started from this point of of me being um, seeing the. I, I did that myself from the Feast Forum. I was seeing the arguments that the parents were being told, say this to the child, just keep on supporting them to eat by saying, you know, food is medicine, you have to eat. I, I read those so many times that they imprinted on my brain that I was able to repeat those to myself when I was having mealtime anxiety. 
and when I was struggling to put fork to mouth, I was able to repeat them myself. And so I think it's an incredibly powerful um, form of support. What do you think made that work for you? Like, uh, why do you think that it resonated for you so much? Um, I think I was, I was definitely at the right point of desperation to mm. know that I could not go on the way that I was and something drastic had to change. Um, but a lot of it was actually from that initial reaction that I got when, like I told you, I read that first thread. I got that sort of cold chill. Oh, it, a lot of it was panic, but a lot of it was also excitement. Like, oh, like I knew this was it. I knew it. And once I, and that just, I got that every time I, I read some information, like that cold sort of almost chill, part terrified, part excitement, um, that I knew that this was the answer for me and that actually I had to treat this with food. I had to eat. And as terrifying as that was, it was also incredibly liberating to be given permission to do that, to be given permission to eat and not only given permission to eat, but told you have to, to recover, which actually it sounds like, it sounds crazy, but I've never been told that. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Um, but I'm, I'm, I fear that there's still a lot of people who are not given that message. I know this is what I hear um, from the people on the forum or, and people email, that email me is that they've actually, despite be seeking treatment, despite seeking support, they've not actually been given permission to eat. And it sounds crazy, but when you understand the eating disorder and how that works, it really isn't. Because that's also, a lot of us are very desperate for that permission to say no to the eating disorder, to say no to what it's telling us, to actually eat. But because the eating disorder is so strong telling us that we can't, we, we need to seek external verification that we can. And I think that, well, definitely from my, um, when I was going through that process of trying to find resources to help me recover, there's seemed that there was a little bit of a fear around telling people that they could eat. And I'm still not sure why or where that came from. I actually have seen a pattern in the conversations that I've had with patients, actively ill patients who write to me and ones that have recovered, where they will tell me, look, what I really wanted was for someone to help me say no to the eating disorder. I needed someone to not listen to my words necessarily, but to look at what I needed and to give me permission to say no to that. And I've also heard a lot of people say, I wish my parents had done what you did. I wish my parents had been stronger. I wish that they had not listened to my words so much. And that's chilling to me because these are the same families who think that they have to listen to their child um, or their adult child who's telling them, I don't want to do this. And they're afraid to put down boundaries because they think that they're going to make that person angry. But these are often the same people that are coming to me and saying, I, I was rooting for them to put their foot down, but they didn't love me enough to put their foot down. Oh, that's, yeah, and that's that's hard, isn't it? That must be hard to hear as well. It must be hard for a person to say. It's tr it's tragic. It's tragic to think that there are people who are being let down because their eating disorder is putting up this front and they really are rooting for the other people to help them not give in to that, but they can't say it. I don't think we can expect patients to be able to say, look, don't let me restrict. Don't leave the room and let the dog eat my dinner. <laughs> don't do that for me. Be yeah. strong for me. Don't yeah. let don't let my tears or my anger bully you. Just actually what comes to mind is a, a real story of strength that, that somebody emailed me and told me about yesterday. She... Um, She's an adult sufferer and she um, has been trying very 
very hard to increase her intake and it's incredibly difficult for her. And she said that the, the strength moment for her was when she was supposed to meet her dad for a coffee and they always share a cookie. And she said she called him and she told him she was going to go to the cafe on her own because she knew that if he went with her, she would the eating disorder would not allow her to have that whole cookie herself because they always share it together. And she also um. knew that he just didn't understand enough that when she said to him, do you want to share a cookie? His answer should be, and the answer that he wanted her to say was, no, you should have a whole one yourself. That's what she wanted him to say, but she knew he wouldn't. He'd say, sure, let's, let's split one. And so she, you know, and like her, what she said was, I just called him and said, Dad, I'm going to go on my own today. And, you know, and she went, and because she was on her own and she didn't have that get out, she was able to eat the whole cookie, which to anyone with who's not had an eating disorder just sounds like, well, wh why would it be a problem to eat a cookie? But, you know, it, that's a huge win for her. And I think the stronger part and the harder part for her was, though, was taking away the, the get out clause that she knew that she had if she went with her dad. Exactly. It is, it is incredibly courageous for someone to do that, what she, what she did. And that kind of courage is hard to do every day, every meal, in every interaction with another person. I, th I think it's, it's just too much to ask of someone. And so we, as the friends and the family and the community, need to honor that courage and to make it easier to say no or to say yes, depending on how you want to put it. It actually reminds me of that book, uh, Ed Says. Uh, which I would recommend to anyone, which is a translator for Ed, the way Ed talks. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, so, Laura, we've talked a lot about Feast, and I could talk forever about Feast after. <laughs> <laughs> but so, 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 what's going on with you now? Well, it's kind of an exciting time for me. So my last child, I have two, and my last child is turned 18, got a driver's license, and is is off on his career. So I am actually free now to work full time for the first time in many, many years. And I thought about what I might do with my time now and how I might contribute and what I might work at. And I thought, well, I could, you know, get out there and get a job completely unrelated to anything I've been doing. But my heart kind of pulled me back to eating disorders. And so I thought, okay, well, what could I do uh, based on the what I've been doing? And I said, well, you know, people have uh, been very kind to ask my advice and ask me to consult, to go into treatment programs, to analyze them, to teach, to edit. And I thought, okay, well, uh, why don't I do that as a business? So I started a company called Circum Mensum, which is Latin for around the table. And my real goal is to help clinicians with working with families and help families with working with clinicians. I have mostly concentrated on helping families do the work that they're doing, but now I'm kind of shifting my focus towards the clinical side. And I feel like I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is be a little bit of Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin is a, a, a woman with autism who helps uh, industries that work with animals to be able to interpret the world through animals' eyes. She has a unique ability and skill there. I feel like I see the world through parent eyes. And I find that most clinicians and clinics I know are too busy doing their work to really see things from the parent side. And I'm talking about not just treatment modality, but like what happens when a when someone first calls your office or what happens when they go to your website or in your waiting room, not to mention what goes on in the treatment room, uh, but also billing and all the other things. I think when we take the parent perspective, we could probably help clinicians better understand what families need, better work with families, and that would end up with better outcomes because parents don't always express what's going on to a clinician because they'll move on to another one. 
they'll go to another clinic, or they will simply keep quiet because they do not want to alienate or make things worse for their loved one in care, even after they left, because they're worried that the that that they may need that resource again. So I'm getting involved with that. I'm I'm traveling, I'm working with people, I'm doing seminars, and I also have this podcast. <laughs> Which I end up wanting to mention your podcast almost all the time because you are on the money with all of the things that you're doing on this podcast. Uh, I recommend it all the time, but I'm also doing uh, my podcast is focused on the collaboration between parents and clinicians, and I'm having a great time doing it. Now, this this parents and clinicians, it's what you're doing fascinates me because it's, um, and you know, I used to, I can say used to now because <laughs> I quit my job, but I used to work in tech and mm-hmm. we would call that um, user, user experience or UX, um, which you're really, that's what, that's what you're advising on. It sounds like it's sort of the, the user experience as we would call it for using the service from the parent's point of view. Um, yes. Which is fascinating to me because... Sometimes I wonder if um, treatment providers or some services think about user experience from the patient's point of view at all, <laughs> let alone the parents of the patient's point of view. It's, it's just some, you know, some places that you, they really have that down and you feel very uh, looked after, I think is the word, by the process. Like you said, from the first moment that you go to the website, it's very clear what you need to do, what the next steps are, how you find give out more information, how you contact them, how you book an appointment, if that's what you want to do. And some, it really just seems like chaos. And you, you can come, especially from, I imagine how a parent, you're feeling a bit scared, a bit panicked, a bit mm-hmm. confused. So anything that is then going to add more to that chaos increase stress levels um, massively, I would imagine. Yes, and it, it makes you feel uh, a distrust that, that makes you makes it harder to be a caregiver. And, and plus, most families have seen more than one clinician. So what you're presenting in your own practice is, is being seen through the frame of someone who's seen other practices. That's not true on the clinical side. The clinical uh, side rarely knows what's going on in other centers, mm-hmm. really. And that's something that I can bring to it as well, is that I've talked to thousands of people. And I know what kind of experiences people have that are helpful. I know what other clinics are doing. And I know what families say privately when they're not uh, when they're not in the in the room with clinicians. So I really want to help with that because I think that's what helps patients. And that's the goal that all of us have the same goal is making things better, more effective, more robust recoveries for patients. I've never been, I'm interested in what happens to parents, you know, because I am a parent and I sympathize, but I really, that is not the point. The point of helping parents do this is to help patients, not to make make it better for moms and dads. Although, of course, if it's better for moms and dads, it's going to be better for the patient. Absolutely. And the siblings and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and the bosses, it all of society is affected by people not getting appropriate care. Yeah, that's so true. And it's so a lot of the time completely overlooked. Uh, eating disorders affect the entire family and not just the family, the extended family and friends and everybody that's involved they do. And it affects clinicians, too. I, I think my heart has really been opened about how hard it is to treat eating disorders. I have never met someone who treats eating disorders that does it cynically or for the money or doesn't care. But I do think that it's very hard to get the you're not trained in how to run the business and how to make the experience work for the family. That's not part of why people get into treatment and the the hard work and the hours that they're putting in can sometimes be ineffective for reasons that they don't know. And also, I'm really, really strong on making sure that clinicians get training that is specific to eating disorders and is evidence-based. And I'm sorry to say that's not universally true. 
Um, I love at the beginning of your own podcast that you say um, we will assume that pretty much everybody is doing the best that they know how. I really believe that. I really do. I have not met the the parent or the clinician that is phoning it in, but that doesn't mean we're effective. And I think that we can do better. And the resistance to getting trained is is painful for me to watch because I feel like patients deserve better. They deserve people who really are cutting edge and well-trained and well-skilled. And why do you think that existence to being trained exists? Because it exists. We know it exists. I think it's it's probably complicated, but I think the biggest reason is that people get into the field because they want to help people. And their intentions feel as if they're being uh, criticized. I think people feel as if they're being criticized for their their intention or their goodwill. That isn't what's going on, but I think it feels that way. When people say, hey, the way you're doing this is less effective than that way, they feel dictated to, they feel criticized, and they feel as if they're being told that they they don't want to do it enough or that they're not trying you know, they don't care enough, which is never true. But that doesn't mean that what they're doing is effective. And I think people don't like being told what to do. They want to do the treatment that they enjoy doing and that fits their values and their politics and their feminism and their um, social justice concerns, because I think that's very true in the in the psych world. People get into it because they believe that people can get better and that that their skills will be very important to do that. They're less interested in things like research um, and, you know, randomized controlled trials that doesn't thrill people. And also knowing what a P value is. I mean, to me, that's really, really important because I think patients deserve to get whatever treatment is probably going to be most effective. So I know what a P value is. A lot of people in the clinical world haven't had that training and really resent being talked down to with all these numbers and these these studies and um, things like stats. <laughs> and I understand that, but I still think patients deserve it. That makes sense, though. I mean, and any of us can get defensive if we feel as if we're being criticized, especially mm-hmm. if we feel that we're doing the best that we can and we're being criticized. Exactly. And of course, that goes for parents, too. We bring our child, you know, or a loved one in for care and all of a sudden feel like, wait, wait, are you telling me I did this wrong? And we get defensive and we start to fight, you know, uh, husbands and wives will fight and it it becomes about our intentions when it really can't be about that. Because if we assume that everybody's doing the best they can, then we can move forward. And Laura, um, where can people find out more about you and what you do and contact you if they need to? I would be very excited to hear from anyone who's interested in these topics. And the best place is the Circumensum website. And I know that sounds difficult to spell, but it's C-I-R-C-U-M-M-E-N-S-A-M.com. And I also have a new thing going on just starting this week, which is called Starfish Packages, which are packages that I've designed to send to families at new diagnosis. So if anyone knows a family or wants to pay for a package for someone who is new, I'm my goal is that any family who's got a new diagnosis of eating disorder in the family get one of these packages and not have to pay for it. So that means we all need to step up and buy these packages to have available for these families. And can you tell me a little bit of what a package is? Ah, it has, it includes information about uh, medical issues, about diagnosis, about neurobiology. It has inspirational messages in there. It has a copy of the Starfish book that I wrote with Charlotte Bevan, who I mentioned before. And it has a letter to the parents from me, a letter to siblings, letter to the patient if the family wants to give it to them, plus 
just a raft of uh, other bits of information and fun things and inspiration. has a little bath salts in there as a message that we need to take care of ourselves. It has a package of tissues because uh, sometimes it's really hard. And all the things that I personally would have liked if when my daughter was first diagnosed that I got a colorful, bright, shiny, optimistic, and informational packet that told me I was going to get through this and told me that I would figure it out. That's how I designed this package. And the package will develop over time with feedback. But I want every family at diagnosis to get information that they need to get going and to feel supported by other families. That's why I developed these packages. And that's fabulous. And the idea is that we gift those to other people. Um, what a great way to start somebody's journey into being a parent of a person with an eating disorder with information and support and community and what feels like a lot of love in there as well. That's exactly what it comes. And also the, the idea that it would be paid for by other parents, that they would be uh, paying it forward really excites me because I want to enable that. Yeah. So anybody listening, if the idea of paying it forward excites you as well, then I'm going to link to that in the show notes and you can go and have a look at those starfish packages. And that could make all of the difference. It could make a colossal difference to somebody, a parent who has just had a child diagnosed with an eating disorder as to how they get off on the right foot and how they feel. And to feel the kindness of the community because, man, this is an amazing community. The advocate community in eating disorders are wonderful, courageous people. And nobody wants to join this world, I'm sure. But once you're in it, you can feel like there are people holding your hands and listening to you. Wow. That is somebody that has put a lifetime into eating disorder advocacy and helping other people navigate their way through eating disorder treatment and being a parent of a person with an eating disorder. So many experiences, resources, all living within one person there. I really encourage you, if you are a parent of a child with an eating disorder, to reach out, at least visit Laura's website because there's tons of resources on there. And um, you'll be able to find the answer to a lot of the questions that you might have at this early stage. She is a wealth of resources. And um, I will link to Laura's website on the show notes this episode. Thank you for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.